And we come now to uh, Queen Esther. And Esther is the ultimate bad girl of the Bible. She's not evil, like Jezebel's the ultimate evil girl of the Bible. Esther's the ultimate bad girl of the Bible, and we'll talk in a minute about why that, you know, why that is her title. Um, If they were to make a movie about Esther, and I wish they would, because there are all the plot twists and things through this book, and I hope that you'll go home and read the book of Esther. It's not very long. It's ten chapters, a few pages in your Bible. Um, if you need a Bible to take home to read, grab one of the green ones and take it home with you. But there's, I mean, there's plot twists, there's sex and drinking and, and conniving and um, a, a few good executions. Um, everything that would make for a good rated R movie, not that I've ever seen one. And so um, go home and read Esther. But I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version. And then nestled in Esther is uh, sort of the recipe of a fulfilling life. There's, there's one... Pa- Esther, uh, no mention of God, really, in Esther, in the book of Esther. Uh, but there's this little section in chapter 4 uh, that, that points to, uh, I, I think, what makes life worth living, really. So, let's walk through the book of Esther. And like I said, I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version. We'll focus a little bit on chapter 4 and then move on to some applications. So let's go through the characters. There's um, King Xerxes. King Xerxes is the king over Persia, modern-day Iran, Babylon. Uh, Xerxes, uh, it's a little-known fact that Xerxes and myself Alex Poindexter. So the only two people in history who've had two X's in their name. Uh, you can Wikipedia that and you'll find that to be true. So you can walk away with that bit of trivia. Uh, so there's King Xerxes and he's, yeah, I guess he's a good guy in the story. There aren't really any good guys per se. There's one really bad guy. Uh, there's Queen Esther. Uh, Esther is Jewish and she starts out not queen. There's Queen Vashti who the ladies of the crowd will love and identify with in the story. Uh, There's Mordecai. Mordecai is Esther's older cousin who raises her. And he's a good guy, even though that would be a good bad guy name. Doesn't Mordecai sound like the bad guy? And then there's Haman, who is evil. Okay, he's he's a little Hitler. Um, And 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 that's no joke. Haman is is an evil guy. So those are the characters. So we open up. With, with King Xerxes, who is a powerful king. And he has this vast empire, and he's conquered all sorts of nations and people, and he's well-resourced. And to celebrate this, he hosts a 180-day banquet of eating and drinking and partying, a 180-day banquet. And then... Like any good 180-day banquet, there's a seven-day after party. So when the 180 days are up, that's not quite enough. You've got to have the after party. So he has the after party. And, and he has all the men, all the, you know, the dignitaries and the cabinet and all the men of the leadership at this after party. And they're celebrating and they're eating and drinking and partying and all that. And he decides, okay, it's time to show off my trophy wife. So he sends for Queen Vashti, his current wife and queen, 
And she is entertaining the lady dignitaries and the wives of the people. And uh, it's the ladies only party. And he sends his servants over to the ladies only party. And he says, Queen Vashti, you're wanted on the dance floor so that the king can show off your beauty to all of his friends. And uh, she says, no, I'm not going. Um, She stands him up. Uh, and, and the king becomes enraged by this. And he meets with his cabinet, and they decide that this is a horrible thing and must be dealt with because she stood him up in front of the other powerful ladies of the country. And if women get the idea that they can stand up to their husbands, look out. Right? And, and um <laughs> So she's banished, essentially, from his presence, and she's not the queen anymore. She's punished pretty severely. So his anger subsides, and the cabinet come up with this idea, and they go to the king, and this is where it starts to get a little R-rated. Um, they go to the king, who's coming, over his ang- who's coming down from his anger, and they say, we have an idea, king, Xerxes. Let's have a contest through your whole empire, and, and let's go and find beautiful young virgins, the, the, the hottest chicks in the land. We'll go gather them together, put them in your harem, and, and we will give them beauty treatments and, and skill treatments. And after said treatments, they will get one night. Okay, this is like the bachelor of, you know, 1500 B.C. or whatever. Um, they get one night in the royal chambers to please you. So you know what's going on here, okay? And, and the king thinks about this, best-looking women in the land, uh, trained and equipped for one night in the royal bedroom, and he says, that's a great idea. <laughs> now, personally, Kelly, I'm appalled by that. <laughs> but the king's all for it. So there's this search through the land, um, uh, you know, Babylonian idol, for, for said talent. And, uh, and Mordecai is raising up Esther, who he, it's, uh, she's his cousin. She lost her parents, so he's raising her as his daughter. And, and he hears about this contest, and he knows that Esther's very beautiful. <clears throat> and, and so he gets her in this contest. Now... I don't know what that says about Mordecai. It's just a part of the story. He gets her in this contest. She's in the harem. Uh, you know, she's, she's training for this. She gets her moment. She goes into the king's chambers, and she leaves the queen because he is most pleased with Esther. That's why I say Esther is the bad girl of the Bible. She won the national contest. Okay? So uh, Esther is Jewish. And the Jews were kind of there in exile. That's a longer story. This is Reader's Digest. So, so they're there as like the subpar secondary people of the land. And so Mordecai tells her, don't tell anybody you're Jewish because that'll wreck things for you. Keep it on the down low. Okay, meanwhile, Mordecai is hanging around the palace so he can spend time with Esther and he hears, he uncovers this plot to assassinate King Xerxes. He tells Esther, who tells the king, 
and she gives credit to Mordecai for uncovering this, and he takes care of business, and he writes down in his, in his journal, basically, that Mordecai did this for him. Okay, meanwhile, Haman, who's the number two guy in the land, Haman is, is the, the, he's the number two important guy, and he loves the prestige and attention. And when he walks out in public, all the locals will bow down in a form of kind of admiration and worship to him. But Mordecai won't because he's Jewish, and the Jews will not worship anything or anyone except for the one true God. And this goes to, this goes to Haman's head, and he gets very, very angry with Mordecai and the Jewish people. And so he essentially uh, convinces King Xerxes that this is a snub, that this is disrespectful, and that there should be a day of genocide for the Jewish people. And Xerxes agrees to this, and he constructs this. Uh, Haman actually constructs a 75-foot set of gallows uh, for Mordecai because he wants that execution to be spectacular because he just hates Mordecai. Well, this is where we take the turn toward modern-day application because Mordecai learns of this plot uh, of genocide, and he goes to Esther... And he says that she needs to do something about this. But the problem is that the queen is not just allowed to barge in on the king. Okay? She can request his presence, and, and uh, in doing so, she risks her life. You don't mess with the king. And that was just an unspoken law. So by going and doing something about this and petitioning the king to change the rule against the genocide, she's risking her own life. And she has doubts because she's safe and secure as a queen right there in the palace. Imagine that. You're safe, you're secure, you're living the high life, and there's death and destruction all around you, and somebody wants you to go do something about what's going on out there. How easy is it to just sort of circle the wagons and ignore what's going on out there because it's not really our problem. So in, in Esther chapter 4... I think I have it um, on the screen there. Yeah, I'm just going to read it there. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your family, uh, father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position... For such a time as this. In other words, Esther, yes, you can hole up and ignore the suffering. But maybe, just maybe, God has you where you are to make a difference for those outside the palace. You may be completely comfortable while others around you suffer. And you can ignore it if you want, but maybe you are God's answer to that suffering. And so Esther decides, you know what, I can't stay blind to this. And she risks her neck, she risks her life, and approaches the king. And I'll let you read Esther to see the plot twists. There's some great moments of, of, of plot twist in this. Uh, one of which is Haman is executed on the 75-foot gallows that he built for Mordecai. 
Okay, there's your plot twist. Uh, and, and also there's this great moment. And again, I'll let you read the rest of the story, but there's one more. This is a great moment when the king is reminded of how Mordecai uh, um, reported the assassination attempt. And he wants to honor Mordecai. So he has Haman come in, and he asks Haman, his number two advisor, if you really loved somebody and were pleased by how they treated you, what would you do to honor them? Now Haman thinks that the king is talking about Haman. And so Haman says, oh... You go to that person and put the royal robe on them and you put them up on the chariot and parade them through town and you say, this is how you're treated when the king loves you. And the king Xerxes looks at Haman and says, okay, I want you to go do that for Mordecai. So you, you see this imagery of Haman having to walk in front of this chariot. This is what is done for you when the king... But I want to I go back to Esther chapter 4. Um... There's this moment in Esther that is really what life is all about if you want to follow Jesus. Um, Jesus doesn't call us to be consumers of our resources. Um, Jesus calls us to be aware of the pain and suffering around us and to actively do something about it. Because see, that's the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is there is a great rift between God and people, and the world is a messy place, and God is redeeming it. And the story of your life and my life is that God wants to use you and me to join him in his work to redeem the world. And so, while it's very convenient for us in, in this day and age in America, especially to use the resources that we have, our time and energy and passion, uh, to build up our own little kingdom and be safe inside our own little walls. I mean, let's be honest, safety is priority one for us. I want to keep me and my family safe and build up that safety. And there are people all around us that are hurting all around us. And it's very easy to just, that's a, I feel bad for that. That's horrible. I'm going to stop checking my news on my iPhone because it's messing with my comfort and security. Uh, and we have to decide, okay, am I sent? Am I on mission? Am I, am I going to engage with the pain around me and show God's love to those outside of his kingdom? Um, am I going to care about the margins or am I going to hole up in the palace? Because see, it, 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 it's, it's easy to say, well, that's not the same. That was genocide. But the truth is there is pain and suffering and we do have our little palace and we can't ignore if we choose to. But the message of Jesus is simple. Uh, you're not following him if you're not setting aside your own pursuits and caring for uh, using your resources to meet the needs that are around you. A few quick um, examples, some modern, some not. Um, George Washington, I'm going to go back to, to George Washington um, because I've spent the summer studying George Washington. This past week I, I finished my 900 page doorstop 
Um, and I've just, you know, done some other things, studying some of his correspondence and things like that. Fascinating man. Now, he had his faults, like the whole slavery thing, which it's still tough to wrestle with some of those things. But one of the things that I've really come to appreciate about George Washington is in his correspondence with many leaders, he makes it clear that all he really wants in life is to be on Mount Vernon, working the land with he and Martha. He loved farming, he loved agriculture, he loved decorating and landscaping. And time and again, you just see him say, oh, how I wish I could just be back at Mount Vernon. Because he was a well-resourced guy, and, and, and he could have easily just kind of holed up and protected Mount Vernon, supported Britain, and lived out his days in complete and total comfort. But time and again, his commitment to the cause took him away from the safety of Mount Vernon and on to sometimes the front lines even, uh, risking life and limb and personal comfort for the cause. And I really admire that. I really admire, my, my, my heart is inspired by the stories of people who can put aside that thing that they really want for the cause. And the cause is different for each of us. Uh, next guy, take a look at this guy here and tell me if you know who that is. Anybody? <coughs> got to yell it. That's Elliot Ness. That's, uh, that's my other hero. I think I've told you that I, I, I really, I talked with Kelly even. I wanted, uh, I entertained the idea of, of Elijah being Elliot Ness Poindexter, but that didn't fly. Um, what I, <laughs> Poindexter's bad enough. Um, I, I, I so admire his story. If you're not familiar with Elliot Ness, Cleveland area guy, um, he took down Al Capone in Chicago. Chicago had layers upon layers of organized crime in his day. Senate, governors, uh, judges, politicians, police force, mobsters, layers of corruption. And he set aside his safety to go into Chicago and try his best to do something about the oppression that he saw. Now, to know the bribes or to think about the bribes that he would have set aside, he could have been set up as a made man like everybody else around him. But he continually set aside his comfort for the sake of the cause. And, and I so admire when you can see the cause and look at your own abilities and say, you know what? I might not be able to, sip to, to, to fix it all, but, but I can do that. And you set aside your own pursuits to do something about the oppression and the suffering. A uh, third example, probably the most recognizable. <laughs> um, I don't know who George Washington is, but that's Matthew Perry. 
Matthew Perry, uh, obviously famous from, from his time on Friends. Um, I think most people are familiar with, with Friends, even, even the younger crowd. And it was pretty well documented that, that Matthew Perry uh, battled his share of demons and was in and out of rehab and, and, and addictions. And so in, in a recent uh, People magazine article, which I struggled as to whether or not to admit that I occasionally read People magazine, um, and it's just a guy thing. It was underneath my golf magazine or something. Um, so right now, Matthew Perry, as, as he moves on with life post-rehab, uh, he writes about how he has now invested his life into helping other people through drug addictions, and he's even converted his Malibu mansion, one of his mansions, into sort of a step-up house, a step-down house, so that people can uh, move out of rehab, engage into society for months at a time uh, using his resources. And, and, he, and he's talked through, of all the things that he's had to enjoy in life, and when you think about a guy like Matthew Perry, you can at least admit, if there's a good thing worldly to experience... A guy in his shoes through the 90s has been there, done that. And what he's essentially said is that these days, uh, helping other people has been the high point of his life. Of all the things he's done, using his past experience to help other people, that's, that's been life at its best. Um, and so he continues down that, and then he finds fulfillment and, and what you can see there is even outside of Jesus, there's something in our DNA that lives fullest and finds the greatest joy and peace and comfort in using our experiences to help other people. Now, I have a, a friend that I want to talk with in a minute, uh, but uh, two quick scriptures. First of all, Ephesians chapter 2. We were made for this. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 here. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, you and I have to decide, are we willing to believe that the Bible is true? And I have to tell you that if you say, yes, you do, it's probably going to be harder for you to believe the stuff it says about you than to believe some of the miracles in it. Like, it's easier for me to believe that Jesus walked on water than it is that God has created me with things in, in mind and he wants to use me. And what this passage says is that you, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been in life, God has things for you to get done for him. We were created to leave the palace and serve the margins. Now, that's the positive side of this, and that that's where fulfillment is in life. The negative side is that if we don't, God gets upset. Now, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, two well-known biblical cities, and it's pretty well documented and understood that those were the two cities that God threw a fit and destroyed by fire. And he destroyed them by fire because he couldn't find even a handful of righteous people 
And this is uncharacteristic for God. He's very, very angry at Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's commonly understood in Christian realms that Sodom, that God was mad at Sodom for one particular sin. What's the sin? Go ahead and say it out loud. It's not taboo in here. What's, what's the sin of Sodom? Homosexuality. Okay, God got mad at all the homosexuals in Sodom and destroyed the city. But what we see in the book of Ezekiel is that's not the sin. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, the inhabitants of Sodom, were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Now, I think it's unfortunate that people of God have gotten confused as to the, the biggest deal in here. The biggest deal to God was overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. In other words, they took refuge in the palace and let people die outside. They used their resources for themselves and were unconcerned, really, about the poor and needy in the margins of society out there. So not only do we see God telling us that we were created and our purpose is to help others, but we see the negative side here as if we don't. It's a big deal to God. Now, the best thing we can do is just think through our life and our story and what do we have to give? And you start to look around and say, okay, what can I do for God to show his love to others? Come on up, Joe. Uh, my friend Joe Romano is here today. And um, I ran into, I, I, I actually, Joe, I've decided that of all the people I know, uh, I run into you absolutely everywhere these days. <laughs> Have a seat. And let me get you a microphone, which is on a mic stand, and the mic stand is music stand, and the music stand is right there. Let me do some circles up. Let me do some laps up here, and we on. All right, I think we're good here. Okay. So anyway, I ran into Joe at Starbucks, and um, he would start to tell me about something that he's, a project that he's doing uh, for people in need, and I was so inspired that I thought, you know what, I got to figure out the right time to, to get him up here, because really all he's doing, it, it's, I mean, it's a big deal, but it's what each of us have in us if we choose. So tell us about yourself, Joe. Okay, so um, I live here in Brunswick, uh, married to my lovely wife, Bonnie, and we've got uh, three three children, um, and I feel very fortunate in my life that God has always kind of provided me, and I look at even my siblings and some of the struggles they've gone through, so uh, I feel like a regular guy, but that's had just kind of a blessed life, and I feel very fortunate to be kind of where I am, and that, that's me in a nutshell. I mean, my life revolves around my kids, and revolves around my wife and, and our family, and uh, I feel like that's always been the, the center of kind of who I am, and I'm at a point now where I want to start kind of giving back letting God know that I'm, I'm grateful kind of for what I have, the simple things that I have. Okay, and there's one particular skill set. Sure, uh, yeah. So uh, I have a full-time job as in like a, a sales job working in oncology, but my real passion <laughs> is um, I do artwork on the side. 
So I've illustrated a children's book, which has given me an opportunity. Can you show? Yeah, to, there's some uh, of Joe's artwork. To um, go to some schools and talk and work with some kids. And I, ever since I was five years old, all I've ever wanted to do is be an, an artist and draw comic books and, and do those kind of things. So um, I've passed that on to my kids, and it's something that I'm very passionate about and been passionate about it since I was five. Okay, and the the. The project that blew me away. I think you use blue yeah, as a character, so, and talk us about tell us about what you specifically sure. are are working through right now. So this is a character <laughs> I created. His name is Blue for a project I'm doing, um, an art pro program for kids. So I illustrated a book, and I had an opportunity to go to some elementary schools and draw with the kids. And the energy and the, the feedback I got from them was was incredible, and it was the best feeling in the world because all I did was go and just doodle some pictures. So I work in oncology. I'm around patients every day that are just fighting this fight. There's signs of some of them you know they're not going to make it, and some of them that you know will or you hope will. But on the side are their kids. Um, some of these kids either have cancer or their parents are going through it. And my whole life I've been looking for a way to, to, to make a difference, you know, outside of what I do in just my normal life. And I've, I've found that I've been drawn to this. So I uh, created this character, Blue. He's a little bit different than all of you know, the other monsters in, in his group, what, what have you. And uh, he's got to overcome all these obstacles. And believing in himself, there's different ways that he could do it. So I've created this program to go and work with some of these kids whose either parents have cancer or they have cancer. And we present them with an obstacle that Blue has to go through. And then we work through it. I give them a couple different options. And then I draw the, you know, what they come up with, whether it's he grows a rocket pack or it's, it's silly stuff. But it's an opportunity for kids to forget about being sick, forget about mom and dad having chemo, forget about all the struggles in their life, and just be a kid. And I hope to give them just simple skills to build on for the days that they're down or the days that maybe mom and dad aren't doing so well, that they can just believe that they're going to get through it. No matter what it is, they're going to make a difference and they're going to be able to, to kind of move on. And they'll be able to kind of track this character through his adventures. So even after I'm, I've gone and you know, I've done with my sessions with them, each session will build a story that they can kind of go back and, and interact. So I want to leave them with something that they can, they can build on. So basically using your talents for more than just your own, you are now investing in some of the most painful, I mean, it takes a lot of courage to just say, you know where I want to go? The child oncology ward. I mean, yeah. that's, that's incredible courage. So tell us quickly about your journey, because I know Blue, uh, some of the unique features of Blue represent some of your own personal pain and struggle in life. And, and so talk about your faith path sure. to get here. So um, I grew up in a, a big family. There's five of us. And God has always been a, a part of our life. Um, my father basically told me he'd rather me go to church and score touchdowns, which at the age of 18, I, I didn't really agree with that message. But as I got older, I started to understand it a little bit better. So... We've always kind of had God in our life, and my father was a very big key for me. Um, and at 18, he had passed away. And uh, I went to a pretty dark place. Um, I, was, I was angry that he had died. I, I'd kind of thrown myself in the, I was playing football at the time, and then suffered an injury so I could no longer play, and my body had kind of withered away. So I knew God had a plan, and I just figured at that point in my life that this is it. I, I didn't want anything to do with it. You know, I, I kind of walked out on my own. I'm like, I, I'm just going to do this on my own. So things got a little bit rougher for me for a time until I kind of found my way back to the help of my brother and, and you know, kind of found my relationship with God. And since I started seeking him, and even at a young age in my 20s, I feel like he's put the pieces in place for me to build the life that he's given me. You know, meeting my wife and having my children and 
and having her health and realizing that that's what the most important is for me. And I just realized that he has me here for a reason. I'm here for something. And it's, it's all kind of coming together in this program. Last summer, um, we had lost a family member, Blake Barchek, in, in the car accident. And this is what kind of pushed me into really developing this program is because, you know, Blake is an incredible kid. I'm very close with his brother, Brent, and can't really put into words what they mean to me. So when we lost him, it's, I, I didn't want people to forget. You know, I wanted to carry on that spirit and that smile and that energy that he had. And I, I wanted to do it in a way with, you know, what can I do? What do I have? So I created this character, and as you can see, you know, Blake wore 36, so we, we put the jersey on him to represent Blake, and uh, since he played for the Blue Devils, and he's a big kid, so the Big Blue Monster of Motivation is what the program is called. So a lot of it's inspired by him. I want to carry on his legacy and his name, and through doing him and remembering him, I want to be able to make an impact with these kids, and I feel like God is kind of pushing me in this way, and I, he doesn't come down to me and say, Joe, go draw with the children. It's just, you know... <laughs> So it's not that, it's just all of a sudden the pieces in my life are falling into place and the more that I think about this, I feel drawn towards it. And It's just starting and I'm just getting it going, but I'm confident that it's going gonna, it's gonna to get to where I need it to be. And a lot of it has come through the struggles of my journey with my faith, and I still struggle like everybody does. But uh, I feel like this is really where he's, he's pushing me. Love what you're doing, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think another piece to that is that, you know, sometimes we equate pain and suffering with the opposite of God's work. And it turns out that a lot of times, um, you know, I think God causes all this stuff, but he certainly uses it to, uh, to mold us and uh, less of ourselves and more of his desires for our life. So here's, let me, let me close with this. Um, the message of Jesus... And his work in your life uh, boils down to, uh, you know, God's desperate desire for a friendship with you, but ultimately uh, him sending you. There's a sentness in following Jesus. And life really begins again when we realize that we are sent. So you're sent to your neighborhood and you're sent to your job or your school or your family uh, you know, Joe was sent as an oncology sales guy and is recognized now that he's sent that way by God to get things done for God. And it doesn't have to be the most churchy thing in the world. It's about using the things that we have and the experiences that we have, the stories that we have, to bless other people, to take light into darkness. And so you should look at your uh, checkbook and your schedule because I think those are the two biggest indicators of what you're using your resources for. And take a look at those two indicators and, and decide, all right, is my life primarily about me and my family and my hold up in the palace or am I doing something with what I have to help those on the margins? Now we talk a lot about Compassion International. We'll talk more about that in the future. I think about Crestview Kids first. I want to, I want to go back and hit this real quick before we close. We have an elementary school in Brunswick begging us, please send us people to mentor kids. 
And maybe some of you are free or can be free once a week or every other week to pour into kids at Crestview Elementary. They need us and they need more. Um, maybe it's time to sponsor a Compassion International kid to do something. Or maybe it's time to look at your own unique gifts and talents and do something about that thing out there that's close to your heart. All right, I'll let that marinate. I'm going to pray, and we're going to do one last song. Uh, and during that song, if there's anything that, that you need to pray about, uh, just, just come on up. I'm wanting, you know, Mark and Jean, uh, could you guys maybe take both sides and, and just they'll be there, the two elders there to pray with you. Um, and, uh, yeah, anything that you need, job, family, friends, whatever, just come on up while we sing this song. And, uh, and we'll pray together. Let's stand and I'm going to close with prayer. Uh, God, thank you for calling us to more. Because we can consume and consume and consume and never, it's never enough. It never really fills the void. Um, but you call us to a life of adventure, a life of courage, a life that, that that enters the darkness with light and, and fixes the broken. And I pray that you would very, very specifically point us toward our area of mission, our area of sentness, and inspire us with the courage and the ideas to go outside the palace walls and free the oppressed and fix the broken. In Jesus' name, amen.